We're in the middle of our Advent series, or actually we're closing up our Advent series, so I have the privilege of, of teaching from some very familiar passages. You know, I was thinking of some familiar words, some simple words, and, and this passage is full of simple words that have profound meaning. Kind of like the words, I do. Very simple words. You kind of understand easily what they mean. could come up with a dictionary definition for I do very easily. But you put them in the setting of marriage vows, traditional vows like to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness, and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. If you're getting married, you hear those words, and most people, when they hear those words, they say, I do. You say them, you understand their meaning intellectually, but do you really understand what they mean at that moment in time? You know, Serena and I have, and I have been married for 28 years, and she can certainly attest that she understands those words better today than she did 28 years ago. And lucky for me, she didn't fully understand them on June 27, 1992, she had no idea what marrying me was going to get her into. Standing on that altar, June 27, 1992, we didn't know that we'd be involved in the sale of two companies, that the dot-com bust would wreck our finances and take our money and the money of our friends and family that had entrusted it with us. We had no idea of the great blessing of six children, even the teenagers, or the pain of miscarriage, or the pain of a stillborn son. And for us, fortunately, we've both enjoyed good health, but as many of you know all too well, that can all change in an instant. With a phone call, with a visit to the doctor, with a test result that we don't like. Some of that happening in our church family this very week. But what if your understanding of I do, what if your understanding of your marriage vows never grew from that moment in time? Never changes from the time you first uttered those words. For me, it means for starters, I'd be about 40 pounds lighter and I'd still have hair. But what would that say about my marriage? Did I know about marriage before I ever had to clean the kitchen? Before I ever had to change a diaper? Before we went to our first funeral together? And if I never grew in my understanding of what I do really meant, what would that say about my life? And what would I have missed out? Our passage today has that same challenge. It's a familiar one. It's full of simple words. But those words have a profound meaning. They're simple words that are easy to understand at a superficial level. But I think we'll spend an eternity growing in our understanding of what they really mean. And that understanding in our text today unlocks the answers to some of life's most important questions. 
Maybe some of the questions you're wrestling with today, simple but profound questions. Questions like, is there a God? Is there anything other than this that we see? And if there is a God, what's he like? And does God really even care about us? And just like my understanding of I do has, has changed me, continues to change me, these truths and these answers to these questions can continue to change us all. Our text today, as we finish our Advent series, celebrating the coming of the Messiah Jesus is John 1. John 1, verses 1 through 18. So as you turn or click to John 1, I'll give you a preview of how we'll spend the next few minutes together. First, we'll read the text, whole text. Then I'll set some introductory context for the passage. And we'll look at four reasons to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. One, he is eternal in verses 1 and 2. He's the creator in verse 3. He's the source of all life in 4 through 13. And he fully reveals the Father in 14 through 18. And then we'll go back and look at how this passage answers those big questions. So John 1, here's what I'd like to do. I want us to stand together and read the first five verses of John 1, and then remain standing, and I'll finish reading the next 13 voice, verses. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You may be seated. So John, the disciple of Jesus, not John the baptizer, 
is the author of the book of John, and our passage today is the prologue for the entire book. It's likely written by John after he'd finished writing the book and kind of sums up the whole story of the gospel of John. The purpose of John's gospel was laid out clearly in John 20, verses 30 through 32. It's the purpose for his book. It's the purpose for today's passage. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John writes so that we might believe. And the result of that belief is life. It's the purpose of John's gospel. It's my prayer for us here today. Let's look at verse 1. The first reason you should believe Jesus is the Son of God is that He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. You know, in Greek class and seminary, these are the first five words that I ever translated. In arxe ein halagos. In the beginning was the Word. And obviously that reminds John's audience, it reminds us of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Except this time, it's in the beginning was the Word. Logos in Greek. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word, the Logos, is also God and was pre-existent at creation. So, what is the Word? John combines kind of a Greek concept here for Logos with the Hebrew understanding of the personified creative power of God. So, Greek philosophers 500 years before the birth of Christ in the very city that John is writing developed this belief, this this philosophy that says, hey, there is an order to the universe. They didn't know how to explain it all, but they knew that it was there, that there was order, there was rationality, that there were laws of nature, laws of mathematics. And so they said the reason that all exists, this ordering principle, we're going to call that logos. And then later philosophers added and said, you know what, that logos, that ordering principle, that's actually the divine. That's something like a God or maybe many gods. And John claims that and says, no, that is the God of the Bible. So it's not just... John speaking to his Greek audience and helping them to understand something. It's him setting forth some foundational truths for us. And it would have been hard for the Greeks to get it, but it also would have been hard for his Jewish audience as well that knew that there was one true God. And yet here we see that the word was with God implying that he, the Word, was in some way distinct from God. 
So you have the logos that is God and yet is also distinct from God. The Greek pronoun here, pros, is not just geographic proximity, not being next to somebody. It implies high level of intimacy and relationship. So logos is God and is with God in perfect relationship with God. And to make sure we don't miss it, John repeats it. He was in the beginning with God. Before there was day or night, before there was land or sea, before there was light and dark, before the earth and the heavens were created, God existed and the Logos was there. And because the Logos has no beginning or no end, the Logos is eternal. Logos, Son of God, is eternal. That's the first reason. The second reason John wants us to believe in the Son of God is He is the Creator. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So three observations here. First, we learn that the Logos is a person. We've got a personal pronoun here. And by person, we mean that the word, while distinct, has a different role. He shares the same nature, the same attributes, and the same divine essence as God. And second, if the Logos is a person, who is this person? Verse 14 tells us the Word is the only Son from the Father. And verse 17 tells us that, is, that the Son is Jesus Christ. Third observation, this is actually another statement of the eternality of the Son. You're either a created being or you're not. A created being or eternal. We're all created. The text says everything that was created, all things were created through the Son, by the Son. Paul makes this crystal clear in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, where he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, this has been a Christian distinctive from the very beginning of the faith. Jesus the Son was not created. False teachers would come in and create these arguments in the church, and the argument was finally settled in 31 AD today. And today, it's one of the differences between Christians and other groups that call themselves Christians, like Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, who, do, who believe that the Son was created. It's also important for us to note that this isn't a correction of Genesis 1. Moses didn't get it wrong. God did create everything. Except we now know through John's writings and others that the divine agent of creation, the person of the Trinity responsible for creation was the Son. It's what we call progressive revelation, like light coming on in a room full of furniture. When it's bright enough to see another piece of furniture, 
doesn't mean that that piece of furniture just got created. That piece of furniture has always been there. The fact that the Son was the agent of creation, the person of the Trinity responsible for creation, is not new. That's how it happened. We just see it more clearly at this point in Revelation. So why should you believe in Jesus as the Son? One, He's eternal. There was never a time when He was not. Two, He's the creator of all that is seen and unseen, which gives Him the authority over His creation. The third reason to believe Jesus is the Son of God is that He is the source of life. Look at verse 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This also brings us back to creation in Genesis 1, where the Creator spoke the world into existence and then filled it with His light, separating light and darkness. And after He'd done that, He filled the creation with life. Plants, sea creatures, insects, Mosquitoes, thank you, Lord. Birds, land animals. And then he created man and woman in him, in his image, and breathed life into him. And notice the text says it's not a fair fight between the light and the darkness. The light overcomes the darkness, which, if you think about it, that's how light works. It's not extinguished. By the darkness. It's not put out. Darkness is just the absence of light. When light shows up, it wins. And don't forget, the sun created light and darkness, so he has ultimate control of both of them. Verses 6 through 8 is the first of two asides on John the baptizer, making sure his audience doesn't confuse the prophet John with the true word. Then he picks up the description of the light, its coming, its advent, and the results in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. The light's for everyone, all of creation dwelling in the land of darkness until the light shows up. Doesn't mean here that everyone is saved by it. I think it's better to think of this as kind of external light, likely general revelation that illuminates and requires a response from the created. You know, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah often refer to him as a light. So the light here is not just to illuminate, this light is here to save. So what happens when the true light, the creator, the life giver, the Messiah steps into creation and the world doesn't recognize him? And not only the world, but even his own people. Verse 11, he came to his own His own people did not receive him. His people, the Jewish people, the ones who had been told of and were looking for the Messiah. 
They rejected him, especially the leaders, the political and religious elites. They rejected the Son, the Word. They rejected Jesus as Messiah. But fortunately, that rejection was not complete. Some did receive him. His closest disciples were Jewish. Verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the Creator comes into his creation to recreate, to rebirth those who believe. And John points out here, it's not just generic belief in God. It's belief in his name, which I believe the context here refers to belief that Jesus was the Son of God. The belief that Jesus was not just a man, but also the Son of God. And in some ways, this recreation is even more supernatural than the first. Here, rather than will of two humans deciding to procreate, this birth is a divine one according to the sovereign will of God. The nine times the phrase the children of God is used in the New Testament, it only refers to those who believe in Jesus. There's even a subtlety here in Greek with the word John chooses for right, the right to become a child of God. There are a couple of words he could have used. One would mean a right that comes from might as a result of strength or power. But the word John uses here is a right that comes from authority, God's authority. It's like this. If you were to invite me into your house for the first time, assuming we're not that close, and I come over to your house, walk into your kitchen, and I open your refrigerator door, and I just take anything I want out of your refrigerator. That would be unusual. I wouldn't do that, I promise. You can, it's safe, after COVID, it's safe to invite me to your house. Um, it's not that I'm not strong enough to open the door to your refrigerator. It's that we don't have the kind of relationship that gives me a right to your refrigerator. Now, if you have a teenage son, you know what a teenager can do to a refrigerator. And they're not going to ask. They're just going to go in and take everything they want like they were the ones that paid for it and stocked it. It's not because of their strength. It's because of their relationship. They are your child. So that's the third reason to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He's the source of life. He's the life for all creation, but also the spiritual life that comes through faith, through belief in that He is who He said He was, the Son of God. So the Word is eternal. He is the Creator. He is the source of life. And the fourth and final reason in this passage to believe that Jesus was the Son of God is that he fully reveals the Father. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
You know, interestingly, today, unbelievers often have a problem with the divinity of Jesus, accepting that he was a real person who was not just a good teacher, but that he was God. The Greeks, on the other hand, where John lived and wrote, they would have been offended that a God would condescend to become a man. Today, we might struggle to believe that there is a God. They believe the opposite. They had no problem believing that there was a God. They just would never have believed that a God would condescend to become man. Chuck Swindoll calls this uh, God concarne. His Texas roots coming out there. God with meat, God with flesh. The Greeks thought that the human corrupted the divine, so they created all these explanations for how this worked with Jesus. False explanations. One was called docetism, where they argued that Jesus only appeared to be a real human, kind of an apparition that fooled us. But John is clear. John said he became flesh, not just here, elsewhere. 1 John 1.1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you. Jesus was the eternal God who became a real man, and he didn't just visit, he dwelled among us. The Greek word for dwells here literally means to pitch a tent, which borrows from the Old Testament imagery. When the people of Israel who'd been liberated from slavery out of Egypt were wandering in the desert, and God said, make a tent that will house my presence. But his presence, access to it, was limited to just Moses and the priests and only to Israel. It was the same way with the temple. Gentiles, we couldn't even get into the temple. But here, in this passage, all nations, all peoples, regardless of ethnicity, at least the ones who could get to Israel, they had access to not just a manifestation of the presence of of God, but of the very Son of God, perfectly displaying, revealing the glory of the Father. It's yet another way in which if you want to get to the Father, if you want to behold His glory, the path through that is through His Son, Jesus. Then we have another aside about John the baptizer. John expands on verse 14, where he said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Look at verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And when I read this in the ESV, the idea of grace upon grace is like waves of grace, one after another, 
Grace without end, like when you go to the beach and the waves never stop, one after another. And while that's true, God's grace is without measure. It does not end. I think it could also be understood here and maybe even better understood as grace replacing grace or maybe new grace replacing old grace. So how is that? Verse 17, the law through Moses was an act of grace. We often assume or believe wrongly that there was no grace in the law. There was grace. Its existence was an act of grace. God could have wiped out the nation of Israel and started over. Yet because of his grace, he offered them a way to enjoy the blessings of covenant life with him, a way to live in peace. It was an act of grace. And just as the pre-incarnate word spoke creation into existence, the birth and death of Jesus brought grace and truth. And he made a new covenant possible that was a greater grace. It's greater in that it's open to all peoples, all of us, every tribe and every nation. It's greater in that it is a one sacrifice for all time. No repeated sacrifices, just the one sacrifice of the perfect God-man. And it's a greater grace in that it is a recreation we get a new mind and a new heart. And God, by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, tabernacles, dwells with us. Verse 18 concludes the prologue, and we begin back where we started in verse 1 with the Son, the incarnate Word, God, seated at the right hand of the Father no longer dwelling with us. But while he's not here today, he has made the Father known to us. He made the invisible God visible. Jesus exegeted, which is the Greek word here. He explained, he expounded, he revealed the Father to us, which is the fourth reason you should believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Because what he told us about the Father is true. So the four reasons John gives us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God is he's eternal, he is the creator, he's the source of all life, and he reveals the Father to us. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, there are questions that every person who has ever lived is confronted with. And John, in our passage today, gives us the answers to them. First question, is there a God? Is there something in control that exists outside of all of this? And John's answer is a clear and resounding yes. It's the same God who spoke everything into being, both seen and unseen. It's the same God who orders all creation, holding it together, animating it, giving it life. It is a God who is gracious and faithful, who provides light in the darkness, hope in the face of trouble. And that God is every bit as real as Jesus of Nazareth was. 
Second question is, what is God like? Or what I sometimes hear people say is, I want to feel close to God. How? How do you do that? The short answer here from our passage is to get to know Jesus, and you'll find out who God is and what God is like. And while he's not walking around the earth, God can carne. We do have eyewitness accounts from those who knew him, who lived with him and walked with him and talked and ate with him. Which is why often people say, if you are struggling with these questions, that the book of John is a great place for an unbeliever to go. The third question This is one that believers sometimes struggle with, particularly when times are tough, is does God care? Does He care about us? Does He care about me? Or did He just spin this all into being and then abandon us to our own free will? John's answer is God does care. In fact, he cared so much that he sent his son to rescue us. And as he later writes in chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves us so much that he not only sent his son, come to earth to live as a man, but he gave us his son. Jesus willingly went to the cross where the sin of the world was heaped upon him. Your sin and my sin. Sin upon sin upon sin. And in return, the Son of God offers grace Upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. For those who believe in him. But remember why John wants us to believe? So that we may have life in and through Jesus, the Son of God. Eternal life, life after the end of all pain, suffering, sickness, and sorrow. And death, but not just then, life now, life filled with joy, a life of abundance, a life marked by peace. Our passage today taught us that life, that life, is not a matter of human will. We don't have to muster enough discipline to do better. We don't have to be good enough or try harder. This life is a supernatural gift. It's an act of God, and all we have to do is believe. So the question is, do you believe? I do. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you that You inspired John to write these words. 
to help us understand the story behind the story. Understand what was happening before creation. To understand, Father, that you loved us so much that you broke that perfect intimate relationship with your son and sent him to earth where he lived a sinless life as a man and took on our sin so that we might have life. An act of grace, an act of mercy, an act of love. So, Father, my prayer is in the midst of this crazy Advent season, busy in some ways, still in others, that, Father, you'd help us to understand the truth, the depth, the breadth of your love towards us, that love expressed in your Son, Jesus, the Son of God, the Word. And Father, as your word says, that you would, in your sovereign, supernatural will, that you would stir in us a desire to believe in the name of your Son. And through that belief, we would have life, not just eternal life, Father, but life now, life of joy and life of peace that we know is only possible if we first have peace with you. So, Father, that's my prayer for me and for everyone listening here today, that we would know, that we would believe in, that we would place our faith in the name of your Son, Jesus, and that we would have the life abundant. I pray all this in his name, the power of your spirit, amen.